You are listening to Christian Outdoors Podcast, brought to you by CVA, the leader in muzzleloader and center fire rifle technology, with your host, Pete Rogers. And, and the quote unquote, this guy has too many followers. He's too much of a celebrity, which I don't consider myself at all. But they said he's too much of a celebrity. He can't possibly write literature. And welcome to this episode of Christian Outdoors Podcast. I'm Pete Rogers. This is episode number 186. If you listen to this episode, you're going to be thrilled as I am to get to listen to one of the most famous people in the outdoor industry. Today we have with us Mr. Jim Shockey. And while Jim may not need an introduction for most of us who followed his career for the last 25, 30 years, there's a lot more to Jim Shockey than just what we've seen on television. And Jim is an award-winning outdoor writer, wildlife photographer, videographer, naturalist, wilderness guide, and outfitter. Jim owns several exclusive outfitting territories in Canada's wildlands, including the renowned Pacific Rim Territory on Vancouver Island, British Columbia, and the famed 12,000-square-mile Rogue River outfitting in the Yukon Territory. His television productions have won 15 Golden Moose Awards from 2009 to 2017 and he is accomplished in archery, muzzleloader, and rifle. He's a retired honorary lieutenant colonel of four Canadian Ranger Patrol Group, Canadian Armed Forces, and is a member of the International Explorers Club in New York City and works in production with his entire family, Louise, Eva, and Branlin. Jim also attended Simon Fraser University and Charlton University and was an All-American swimmer and member of the Canadian National Water Polo Team, where he attended two world championships. He is considered to be an expert in ethnocentric arts of Western Canada and in 2019 opened the Hand of Man Museum of Cultural Arts and Conservation on Vancouver Island, Canada. Tens of thousands of people have been through his amazing museum, which is funded entirely by voluntary donations. In addition to this, Jim has hunted all over the world. And if you followed his show on the Outdoor Channel, then you know that you never know where you're going to see Jim Shockey in the, in the world hunting species that many of us have never heard of. We're going to talk about that and a lot of other things coming up on this interview that I conducted with Jim Shockey just a few weeks ago. It's a fascinating story. It's a great conversation, and I'm thrilled to have him on Christian Outdoors Podcast. We're going to get to that interview that I conducted with Jim in just a few minutes. Are you looking for a new rifle for this deer season? If you are, then look no further than the Scout by CBA. This single-shot rifle is available in many of the popular straight wall calibers that are now legal in many states. The Scout comes with a fully ambidextrous stock, Duracite rail for your optics of choice, a crushed zone recoil pad. The Scout by CVA is a perfect choice for your next hunting rifle, and you can find out more about it at cva.com. Again, thank you for tuning into this episode, and I'm going to take a minute just to ask you, if you would please, on the podcast platform that you're listening to this, please take a minute and leave us a rating and a review. It makes such a big difference in how people find us. You know, we're really growing. A lot of that is because of you guys. 1.2 million listeners now and adding a a lot every week. And just thank you for that. So please leave us a rating review when you can. Hello, everyone. I'm really excited to announce a new partnership that Christian Outdoors Podcast has with Bear Beans Conservation Club. Beginning in January of 2023, the Bear Beans Conservation Club will begin accepting new memberships for $7.99 per month. As a Bear Beans Conservation Club member, you're entitled to 35% off all products, free shipping to all products, and discounts from our partner brands. 
In addition to all this, you also receive free samples of the Bear Beans new products. And new for 2023 are the single-serve specialty fresh roasted coffees. This single-serve coffee is especially designed for people who love the outdoors and live life outside. BCC member pricing is as low as $0.97 per cup for excellent coffee. But the most exciting thing about all this is the commitment that Bear Beans has to conservation. A full 50% of all coffee sales products are going back into conservation. That's right, 50% of all profits are going back into supporting wildlife and wild places. If you love coffee and you care about conservation, Bear Beans Conservation Club is a must-have for you. To join, go to bearbeans.com for more information. Without any further delay, I want to get right into the interview that I conducted with Mr. Jim Shockey here on Christian Outdoors Podcast. Jim Shockey is one of the most recognized faces in the outdoor industry. If anybody's watched television, then you've seen Jim Jim Shockey on Jim Shockey's Hunting Adventures, Uncharted, The Professionals, and all these other ones as well. But I'm curious, Jim, since you started as an outfitter, what was it that was your transition into television and videos and stuff of that nature? How did you make that transition or what was it that drove you to do that? I, I was I was writing for outdoor magazines before that. So I, I wrote my first article in 1984. Okay. And in 1990, 1990, uh, I, I made the decision to get out of the antique businesses that I was running at the time. I had three stores in Vancouver, one on Vancouver Island. And, and, I knew that I would get into outfitting, well, hunt, the hunting outdoor world. Right. I didn't know if I'd be selling T-shirts or what I'd be doing in that world. Yeah. You know, at the time, Bill Jordan was doing pretty darn well with his camos. So yes, he was. I even <laughs> thought, about, thought about that. You know, I, I didn't know which which uh, capacity I'd be in the industry. I just knew that that's what I wanted to do with my life. Um, so, so because I'd been writing, it, it was a fairly natural progression to to um, get into the the outfitting side you know the the guiding so i, I went to an outfitter and uh, said i had a i had a fellow i knew was richard p smith at the time he was writing for outdoor life magazine and uh, i remember the name and, yeah 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 he wrote a lot of our good good writer good outdoor writer and, and i contacted richard and said hey i might be able to get you on a hunt up here in vancouver island and i'll talk to the outfitter so i went to the outfitter and he kind of, he was a rough old guy. Uh, Wayne, we was his name. And, uh, he said, uh, he said, I, I'm not going to hire you as a guy. And they said, no, 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 I'll guide for free for you. And I've got a guy that's going to get you a promotion for your territory. And he kind of smoked cigarettes and yeah. said, okay, you're hired basically. So I, <laughs> I, um, you know, I, I did that and I did that because at the time there was no television. It was just writing. Uh, right. That was, right. there was yeah. no outdoor television really. Yeah. Yeah, um, I missed the, uh, I'm an outdoor writer myself, but I missed the good old days of that. I missed it by about seven or eight years before I got into it. And I started in 99. Oh, yeah. I started in 99 was when I started writing. But yeah, anyway, I missed all that good stuff, but that's okay. Still been a good ride. Yeah, so the, go ahead the, with your story. Yeah, the, yeah, the transition time. And and so I guided that year and I, my intention was to buy the outfitting territory to you know figure it out first and learn how to guide. So I guided for him for free. The next year I had... Uh, you know, the, the television was, there was still the major networks, but there was now the cable, you know, the three major networks. Right. There was no space on there for outdoor television. But right. 
the cable networks were coming on board and there was hundreds of cable, including ESPN. Yeah. And, and the, the Nashville time, network, yeah, they had the Nashville network yeah, exactly. showing hunting and fishing yeah. shows. And then, uh, yeah. Oh, there was another one that's gone. The WGN out of Chicago was showing hunting and fishing shows and ESPN. That was yeah, it. I didn't, yeah, I didn't get them, and, but that was exactly right. So, so we, I went to, uh, there was a fellow, Mark LaBarbera, who was a yeah. executive editor or executive producer or whatever, executive something or other of the North American hunting club. And I mm-hmm. said, you know, knew that they were trying to get into television from the writing. So I contacted him and said, Hey, why don't you come out here? And I, I'd written for outdoor for North American Hunter Magazine. Right. And I bring your TV crew. So I went back to the outfit and said, this year I'm bringing back a television crew. And, and, uh, when I did the guiding, I, I found that, you know, Mark's a great guy. He's hopefully he's listening to this, but you know, he's pretty nerdy. So, <laughs> you know, I was living the part. I mean, I was, that's what I did. You know, I, I was outdoor person. I wasn't an executive. And uh, so I didn't have a problem being in front of the camera when they were, were filming on the bear hunt. And and I kind of, you know, looked at it and said, wow, all these outdoor or all these cable networks don't have any content and they're going to need content. So I think this is the future. So I bought a camera a little while well, at the time. You were a big, huge, clunky thing. Oh, yeah, they were. And, yeah, 60 huge, pounds. Yeah, VHS yeah. recorders. Yeah. It wasn't until the uh, eight millimeters came out that they were actually reasonable size. Right. But I bought one and started video on my hunts and, and with the intention of first doing VHS videos, which for the young guys out there go, what's a VHS? Well, it's <laughs> no. a big fat tape. It's like, I'm old enough to remember eight track tapes going. Oh, into me the too. Car. Me yeah. too. I still have yeah. some. Yeah, there you go. I still have some <laughs> in my collection. I think I they probably, they're, they're collectible now. I know. So, so I just, it was a pretty easy transition from producing my own video VHS videos, selling those. And I was on Bill Jordan's, um, the Real Tree Outdoors, doing a segment there for a few years and then started my own show mm-hmm. in 2001, I believe, is when I actually, okay. but I'd already practiced editing and whatnot. Right. So it, it was right. A, just a natural transition, storytelling nice. in a different media. Yeah, it is, which is, you know, podcasting is doing that now, right? As an outdoor Same writer, thing. broke into podcasting because it was another way to, to share content in a completely different manner. Um, I'm, uh, as a muzzleloader guy myself, I'm fascinated with watching you through all the years, choosing to use a muzzleloader for grizzlies and brown bears and, and animals. I don't even remember the names of, uh, for, for decades, that was all you seemed to use was the muzzleloader. Uh, was that because you preferred it? Was it because it opened up more, more seasons for you? Or why did you choose the muzzleloader? Yeah, you know, I was I was a rifle hunter to begin with. There, there mm-hmm. was hardly any archery back in those days. Oh yeah, um, yeah, yeah. And and there was no muzzle loading. I was a rifle hunter, but archery actually came on board afterwards. And what I found, rifle was too easy, so I went to archery. And and I remember I was hunting Saskatchewan, and I, and I there was a particular big buck that I couldn't get on. He he would cross one you know sort of chunk of land but it was wide mm-hmm. open summer follow field like there yeah. was no way to get like he was headed to a fall rye patch and the only way I, I patterned him the only way i could get him i figured was to be on that field but there was nowhere to hide so i dug myself a goose blind and i and i waited down in a goose blind for him and it was back in the days of the old aluminum 24 19 arrows i mean they were <laughs> yeah. like they're they like 
throwing yeah. great big logs. It was. It was deer. a pool cue going through the air. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. And yeah. I, the, the buck did what he was supposed to. And I, it was a morning, you know, and, and he came walking by and I went, bling, 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 you know, whoosh, 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 throwing these logs out at this deer. Basically turned the whole summer fall field into a pincushion, and he never spooked. <laughs> kind of looked around and walked and looked, and and uh, when I I was just disgusted, I picked up all my arrows out of the field, never touched them. Yeah, and I was walking back to my truck, and a guy stopped me, pulled up beside me, and said, "Hey, I was watching you from a hill," and he said, well, "You know, why didn't you just use a muzzleloader?" And I said, "What muzzleloader? What the heck's that?" And he said, "Today is muzzleloader season. It opens, you know, this morning. You could have got that buck easily with a muzzleloader." So, so I started looking at these, and then I had a friend that was headed down to uh, Nebraska to Cabela's to buy one of the new fancy inline muzzleloaders that Tony Knight had yes. designed. So I said, I yeah. gave him the money and said, buy me one too. In those days, you could cross international borders, go down right. and buy a gun and bring it back to Canada. <laughs> yeah. And, and so I, I switched to muzzleloader, and I loved it. It, it was the perfect combination of you know, rifle wasn't challenging enough. Bow and arrow was obviously way above my pay grade. Yeah. And muzzleloader was the perfect. If I if I did the work, spent nine hours sneaking up on something, and I was forty hour forty yards away, and it only gave me a straight on shot, I could take it. Right. You know, and that that's I always felt with bow and arrow back in those days that I, yeah, I, well, I was too much of a gambler. I can take the shot, and and that's just yeah. not a good mindset to be in. Right. For for archery. So so yeah. I muzzleloader was the perfect choice, and then it became where if I didn't hunt with muzzleloader, it didn't mean anything. It had to right. be muzzleloader or bow and arrow basically right. for decades. A long time. Yeah. For a long uh, time. Yeah. Yeah. yeah to- I loved and, it. One, sh- one shot. Yeah. Yeah. And Tony Knight changed the game. I mean, he totally revolutionized the game of muzzleloader hunting with the inline invention. And it's just evolved since then. I mean, some of the muzzleloaders now are 200 yard guns, you know, which back when yeah. you were doing it, they were still 80 to hundred yard guns. <laughs> You know, yeah, I only ever used a hundred grains of powder for everything. Like that, oh, that's, that's good to that's know. What yeah. I used. Yeah. And a big, you know, looping bullet. And yeah. and I mean, I had to get 80 yards was about my, my distance. Right. Right. And I like that. I like the being close, but not, as you say, I think you described it very well as a bow hunter. You know, as uh, one of my guests said, if they open bazooka season, I'd probably be using it too. Right. So I'm, I'm an equal opportunity, whatever's in season and yeah, you yeah, enjoy sling, it. Slingshot. Go do it. Whatever, Go do it. Absolutely. Whatever's legal, I'm. I'm happy to. I'm a hunter. I'm not right. a. You know, it's. I don't have. If I was a ditch digger, I wouldn't care what shovel I was using. I'd try them all. You know, <laughs> That's exactly right. Very well. That's a good analogy. I may use that one. I'm gonna borrow that one, Jim. That's sure. a really good analogy. Very simple. Over to you. And simple analogy. I like that a lot. Well, I mean, we could talk to your hunting stories all over the country for, or all over the world for hours. And, and, and I would like to do that at some point, just to hear about some of the exotic places and the cultures and places you visited. However, there's two, two things I really wanted to focus on in my chance talking to you. One is your museum and the other is your book. So I want to go to the museum first is what was it in you that said, I mean, not many people come up with an idea. I want to open a, my own museum. So was it because you had this massive collection trying to figure out what to do with it, or you just like cultural arts and wanted to share it with people? Yeah. You know, it, it I envisioned this museum when I was 10 years old, two really? things. I, wow. Yeah. 10 years old was kind of a, uh, a point in my life where I was old enough, smart enough. I don't know. I thought I was smart enough to start making decisions for my life. And, and, so two things I did at that time, I started my first novel, 
I was 10 years old. And I also envisioned this museum. Mm-hmm. I didn't know what it would be called. I didn't know where it would be. Didn't know how I'd be able to afford it because, you know, I grew up in a trailer park and we had no money. The conversation every day was whether dad would get laid off and there's road construction crew. And when we did eventually buy a house, when I started public school, you know, would we lose the house? Would the mortgage be paid? I mean, this is what I listened to every single night. And I, I just never wanted to live like that. I, I, you right. know, I felt so badly for my father. He worked so hard and, and, that was, you know, mom and dad were always worried about it. And I said, no, I'm not going to live that life. I'm I'm going to do something different. Right. And and I escaped into National Geographic magazine. I could get that from the library. It didn't have to have a subscription. And and I could read it. I could see these places. I'm going to go there. I'm going to go there. I'm going to find this. I'm going to bring this back. I'm going to have my own natural history museum. And, and I started when I was 10. I, my first seashell, my first collection started with a seashell and it was our local church was um was uh, for sunday school if you brought five friends they would give you a conch shell you know a big conch oh shell, yeah wow living in saskatchewan that's like there that's ooh, the conch <laughs> that's shell. a long you know, way from the ocean <laughs> yeah, yeah that, that they're just as no conch shells so right right i got my friends and went to sunday school with them and i got my conch shell and i still have it in the museum so I started my collection then with with uh, seashells, insects, pretty rocks, fishing lures. You know, I could I could steal them out of my dad's fishing tackle box or my uncle's, or and I could go down to the river at low, you know, when the water was low, and I could wade around and find where guys yeah. had lost their hooks in high water. Um, and I still have all those. I still have all those lures and insects. My collections are here, and I, I just started amassing this collection, much to the the suffering of my my mother you know I, my yeah. our basement was filled with my collections of this and that and then for the last 39 years the you know my poor long suffering wife louise same thing she's <laughs> they've tolerated my you know this obsession you're and bringing home I, more rocks you're we don't need any more rocks yeah. jim we don't need any more rocks yeah. <laughs> you have no idea how many times I, you really need to buy another thing like you need it <laughs> i come home from these trips with these crazy suitcases, whatever the max allowable luggage, yeah, you know, yeah. what five suitcases, and they weren't suitcases, they were wrapped up stuff. The yeah. customs guys would shake their head, you know, over into the drug section, and, <laughs> and mostly because they wanted to see what I was bringing back, right? And you know, right. I had all the permits, it was all there, it was all legal, but they, right. yeah. it was, yeah. Uh, but but yeah, I started when I was 10 years old to, to, to do this museum. And what I say is, if you drive in one direction, for half a century, don't take any side roads. You end up somewhere. Right. And our museum, our hand-to-man museum of natural history, cultural arts, and conservation, is where I ended up in, on the museum side. Wow, that's nice. How big is it? Square footage? Seventeen, yeah, seventeen over seventeen thousand square feet. It, it's big. People big. think it's a couple of dusty little rooms. Now it's a, it's a big world-class museum. It, it yeah, could easily sit in downtown new york city right know, beside the natural history museum there it's, right right it's, and do you um, do you have all your animals in there as well taxidermy yes there trophies. but there's no shoulder mounts there, there's only one shoulder mount actually and, and that's a bison just because it was full mounted bison's a little bit big although we have full mounted moose yeah so so it, there's no shoulder mounts there's um skeletons lots of skeletons everything from whales narwhales you name it Elk. Oh wow, a uh, narwhal, a yeah. narwhal skeleton. That'd be cool to see. I'd yeah, love to full, get there and see it. Yeah, 
It's awesome. Yeah. Everybody that's even remotely interested in the outdoors and even not remotely interested in the outdoors because mm-hmm. of the cultural artifacts, they love it. I mean, we, we had over 26,000 visitors last year um, and we're out of the way where you have to want to come here. Right. It has to be a destination where, where it's located on Vancouver Island, yeah. not on the main highway. Yeah. But yeah, they, they come and, and it hmm? was the location on purpose. I mean, did you set it there on purpose? Did you want it, or is yeah, that just you know it, it? No, it was. We there's a there's a big landmark barn on the highway, and a million cars a month go by that barn, and wow. it, it's a massive three three story barn. It it's all filled with antique dealers, you know, mm-hmm. little booths. Yeah, it's called an antique mall, and and we own that as well. I bought that a long long time ago for this purpose for the museum, but. You know, I like the antique stores in there. It's only 5,500 square feet, so it wasn't big enough. Um, and and I think if the museum was located there, it would become a roadside attraction as opposed right. to what it is, is right. an educational facility. So so we waited, and when our children's school came available, the government took it out of, you know, the school board or whatever it is and, and sold it into the public. Mm. When that came available, we, we bought it. So our... our both Brandlin and Eva went to the school that I'm sitting in. Our our edit suite is one of the classrooms. Oh, and how cool is that? Yeah. So you turned yeah, an awesome. old so you turned an old school facility into your museum. Yeah, yeah. It was built in 1961, and they decommissioned in the year 2000. And we oh. they left it. It was it was a mess. It was squatters yeah. living in here. Mm-hmm. I took four 40 foot containers of personal garbage out of here. <laughs> What wow. after we bought it? They, That's yeah, a lot they, of garbage. Root. Oh, you you have no idea. Louise, <laughs> when I said we got it, she burst into tears. Yeah, you know, she's she it's a white elephant. I said, I know, I know, but I have a vision. You know, yeah. just let me work on this for a few years and we'll get oh. it. So there were those were not happy it, tears that she burst into. They were sad tears. No, no, <laughs> she was she was not no, it wasn't my finest moment in her eyes, you know, picking up this <laughs> derelict building. There was no furnaces. They were all stolen. All the copper wiring was stolen. All the copper plumbing, gone, gone, gone. Uh, so oh, so wow. we had to redo it all. And, and it was still zoned public, So, which means only the government can use it. And the government didn't want it because right. it didn't meet seismic fire code, they said. But they needed yeah. a bigger school. That's what it was. Yeah. So, so we had to then, it was a gamble because the money would have been gone because the government wanted it torn down and 10 houses built right. a residential, you know, they, they said they would give residential zoning, but not commercial. And we couldn't use it as public. We weren't even hardly allowed in the door yeah. you know, just to look and you had to get out. You couldn't use it. So, so it was, it was a gamble. It was, uh, you know, uh, the government was a immovable object and I was an irresistible force and, <laughs> and we just went, went, yeah. went at it like that. And, but, uh, but, you know, I mean, the, the bureaucracy here is their kindergarten kids compared to what you deal with around the world. So right. it was, you know, like, really? You, yeah, you guys well, I know amateur. if you're like me, and, and so you we are just a kept gear nut it. when it comes and, uh, to your outdoor we clothing. Changed uh, and we want to get nice. the best clothes nice. that we can. Well, that's, that's interesting. I've never seen, uh, I know I've seen on social media going to the website store and have the sign. I've never seen it built here because it fades a picture of the entire building. I just had no idea it was an old school. But Moosey Williamson is the founder and designer of Catch and Release Hunting Apparel. And he has been fighting that same issue. And he knows that camo and clothing are essential for an accessible a successful hunt and as important as gear is high-end camo is now almost a luxury it's so expensive 
you have to decide, am I going to buy a new camo outfit or am I going to buy a new rifle or shotgun? Most hunters want good gear at an affordable price, and this is where Moosey and Catch and Release Camo is new to the space, but they're working hard to ensure that their clothing competes with the highest end lines at a much, much lower cost. I tell you, I am really impressed with their fit and with their material and also just everything about it. I'm very impressed and proud to have them as a supporter of Christian Outdoors Podcast. If you want to find out more, you can go to www.catchandrelease.us. I want to transition to your book now. And you mentioned writing a novel when start, or starting writing your first one when you were mm-hmm. 10 years old. And as a writer myself, and I've written six books, but I, I struggle with fiction. And we could talk writing for a long time, right? And I don't want to bore our listeners with that. But for some reason, fiction is difficult for me. Nonfiction is, comes easy because that's what I've done for 25 years. Um, so I'm fascinated with one is is why this book, and I wanted I want you to talk about it. And then I'd like to kind of, ask about your transition from writing hunting and fishing stories and how to into fiction. And did you find that difficult or not? And and so forth. So call me Hunter is the name of Jim Shockey's new book It's coming out like any time now, right? Well, actually yesterday I received 200 of the arcs advanced reader copies. So, so it's not the finished book. It still has to go through one more copy at the, the eighth, edit actually Um, it's a slow process unbelievable i I am shocked it's such what goes on yes i got a contract in the mail yesterday for for a new book and and i was reading through the contract and i think and the timelines there i think why does it take this long in modern technology you know i mean it's but but it does for those who don't know getting a book to market is a very slow, long process. I mean, it can be years. It is years. I, I, yeah. I mean, on my novel, I, I started writing, as I said, when I was 10, I, I got about 10 pages in and I used to hide it behind a brick in our house, a loose brick, my manuscript. Uh, but I realized, I mean, A, I didn't know how to spell. I didn't know how to write hardly. And, and I didn't have a story to tell. So I knew I had to live a life first. So I, in 1990, somewhere between, uh, you know, 91, I have it dated 91 on my original manuscript, uh, the Call Me Hunter manuscript. Uh, I wrote the first words, you know, Chivago is dead, I killed him. You know, I hunted him down and killed him. And it, it, those words I wrote, and I wrote that first chapter, but I realized even then, I and I was in my 40s, I still hadn't lived enough life to have a story to tell. Right. And And so I spent the next 25 years peregrinating around the world, just going, going, going. And in 2019, November, uh, 2019, October, I was my last international trip. And I I stopped it for a couple of reasons. But the one of the very main reasons was because I knew I had to write this novel. I had to get it out of my head. It was, I, I would sit on a mountaintop in Ethiopia over the bamboo forests and Udubulu and, and be writing the novel. Yeah. I'd be in a customs yeah. office waiting for permits, yeah. writing the novel. 
sitting on a, a dog sled in the in the Arctic with the Inuit writing this novel. Right. Uh, and so I had to get it out of there. It was just taking too much hard drive space. Yeah. And and so 2019 November was when I started writing. I sat down and picked up those lines and started writing. Um, and I knew if I kept the international travel, I, I would never, it would never get done. Uh, plus COVID hit right then, right afterwards. So right. I, you know, I just wrote anyway. It was, it was perfect timing for me. And so that's, we say years, I mean, it's 2023, that was 2019. Yeah. So it's four years, three and a half yeah. years. Yeah. And, uh, when did unbelievable. You, when did you finish the manuscript? When, when did you say, as a writer, I understand this. Is it okay? I'm done. Yeah, two, I mean, because a writer can, we always find something to change, something to improve. But at some point, you guys say, yeah, I'm done. Yeah, it was about a year after I sat down writing. So the following fall of, of 2020. Okay. Um, 2021 was the first time that I, I managed to get an agent, which mm -hmm. is hard. The first step. That's yeah. I mean, hard. my, my agent, uh, Esther Fedorkowicz, she she gets a thousand unsolicited manuscripts a month, a thousand. So she has a yeah she has a a group of thirteen readers that that basically go through this looking for a gem, right? And and then they if they think it's something good they'll recommend it to her. And, and there's bonuses if they find the next you know writer that right, gets published. Right. And and uh, you know so they're but but they're they're Esther told me when she called me and said we're you know or no they her people called me and said we're going to set up a zoom call with esther because she's busy like beyond busy and um her first question when we had the zoom call i mean it's like this i go holy yeah. cow a real agent yeah. and, and her first question, she was she was had a thing in you know paper in front of her and she she looked at me and said my first question is did you actually write this and, and I, yeah and she kind of she you know she said well you're outdoor writers they can't write this kind of writing and then she said she said i gotta tell you i've never seen this and th there was her report from from her right her writing team and it said sign this writer now the next great writer and that she oh, said wow. i've never seen that these are, these are the most jaded cynical people because they have to read so much swill i mean it's people's yeah. heart and souls went into it but it doesn't make it good that's right and, and so they right. they had she had 13 check marks on there and just like you you like this is what they told her well that had and to so make you feel good didn't it jim that had to make you feel good yeah yeah i mean i you know i have a big enough ego to think you know i, I don't need other people to tell me what it's mostly for myself and i was satisfied that this is as good as i could do so yeah. it was just a matter now of getting someone to read it and recognize yeah. it then but still then, but still it's nice when somebody in the industry somebody's going to represent you acknowledges that what you feel is good is good yeah, I mean, sure. I mean, everybody likes an attaboy. Yeah, you know who who doesn't? Especially when you're you're a writer, you 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 put your heart and soul into it. And I think fiction is is another level of that because you're it is you're truly this is you going down on that paper. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not about somebody. It's not a how to go right. kill a deer. It's right. It's it's not fact where you're just t retelling a story that's been told. It just needs to be rewritten. Mm -hmm. the, fiction is that is you so if you're going to do fiction you better be prepared for someone saying i don't like you <laughs> and, and well you said. Know, I, I have yeah thick thick skin I, I i didn't worry about it but it even esther's help it took another year to get 
a publisher to actually read it. The first, it, it's it's almost literature. It should probably qualify as literature because there's mm -hmm. no genre that it fits in. Um, you know, they have to they have to slot it somewhere, so they call right. it fictional thriller. But it's kind of not. It's 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 almost an art book. It's literature, and and the first ten publishers that we sent it to, um, they they never read it. They said, "No, we're not reading this." Because they Googled Jim Shockey, yeah. and and they said, and and they quote unquote, this guy has too many followers. He's too much of a celebrity, which I don't consider myself at all. But they said he's too much of a celebrity. He can't possibly write literature. You, I guess you've got to be a down and out, <laughs> depressive professor of literature yeah. Yeah. before they they even think you could write like that. You know, suicidal. I don't know, but but anyway, she. Yeah, on, on top of everything. So if they Googled a picture of me, they, but whatever, <laughs> 10 publishers said, said no. Yeah. Uh, and and it wasn't, and even with Esther's pushing, and she's had many bestsellers uh, on the New York Times, like she, mostly nonfiction is what she handles. Mm -hmm. But uh, it was actually Jack Carr that that mm. made the, he, he mm -hmm. opened the door. And, and it's because I, I know Jack, I was there standing with him beside him when he got the phone call from Chris Pratt saying that he wanted to option his terminal list for oh. an Amazon television series. Nice. So, I mean, we had a big celebration. And, yeah. You know, yeah. I mean, uh, and, and so it was, it was Jack Carr that I uh, was on his podcast, uh, danger close, I think it is. And, and um, he read it before the podcast and he was just you know, effusive in his praise. And this is a new genre. This is, and you know, these books are good bestsellers on his wall. And he said, these ones started a new genre. This is where this one belongs. He, he was, he was so wow. nice. positive about it. And he was the one that made the phone call to Emily Bessler at Simon and Schuster. Now Simon and Schuster is the biggest of all fiction publishers. Right. right, right. Um, and they, have a division that's the Emily Bessler books and Emily Bessler is the rock star of editing. She, her, her, her uh, fame is, is because she's discovered so many of the best-selling authors. That's right. her thing is finding right. the, the new author. Right. And, and um, he told her to read it and she had it on her desk, but you know, again, uh, Esther gets a thousand unsolicited manuscripts a month. Simon and Schuster gets a thousand a week. Yeah, at I least. Mean, that's yeah. how many manuscripts come yeah. in. So you, yeah. you just never make it to the top of the pile. Right. But with Jack, you know, his endorsement, it went to the top. Esther or uh, Emily read it and it, it literally signed me up for a two book deal within, you know, a short time. Big advance. It was nice. You know, Very but, nice. Congratulations she, on that. Yeah. You just said two mm -hmm. book deal. So there's another one working. Yeah. Well, if you read, when you read Call Me Hunter, you'll see how it's. That the story is not finished. Yeah, it, it, yeah. Uh, it uh, and it, I left a cliffhanger ending the original version in the manuscript, and Emily said, "You're you're a first time novelist. You can't do that. Stephen <laughs> King can do that. Yeah. The sequel. Yeah." She said, "But you can't. You have to have a nice package finished." So I had to write the first three chapters of the sequel and attach them onto the back end of the uh, yeah the original manuscript. So so the sequel is there only because. I, I always knew it had to be three books. It's already a hundred and whatever, 35,000 words, 130,000 words, which is a long novel. That's a long novel, and, yeah. 
yeah, it, it's. I've always envisioned it, it's going to be at least four hundred and fifty thousand words. So it's going to be three novels. That's and, that's and a lot so of words. Come, and and I, we can talk writing for a long time, but one of the things that I have found difficult in transitioning from writing for magazines and transitioning to books is for 20 years, you write 1,500 words, 1,500 words, 1,500 words. You get from beginning to end in 1,500 words, and now you got to go to 50,000 words or 100,000 words. Like, how do you do that? You know, I mean, that was, a, to me, the hardest transition was I'm done, and I've got 15,000 words, and I need a lot. You know, how am I going to explode this? And I, and I've, and I've talked to a lot of guys at these conventions and stuff, and that seems to be one of the biggest transitions. But I think it's what you said is writing fiction is completely different than what we have been writing forever, right? In the, in the nonfiction outdoor writing world. Um, and that's just, you know, my hat's off to you for being able to do that and to, it sounds like it's going to be well, and I can't wait to get a copy of it. I really can't. Um, and I'm, I'm excited about that. Tell me more about the book though. I mean, who, it, protagonist the um he, here's the thing about this particular work remember i said it's you know i didn't have a story to tell it's really my story so it, it's it's about the last 60 years 50 50 years of my life mm-hmm. 50 55 years of my life um so so it's and i think that's what intrigued them in in the the big leagues was who is this truth or is this fiction and and I didn't have to make a whole bunch up. You know, when you right. live the life that I've had, there it was. I I, I mean, I didn't have to make a bunch of right. stories up. So just change you know, the names. Just change the names. Yeah. Protect the innocent. Right? Yeah. That's well. What, what I say is, it's it's eighty percent truth and fact, and that's all you can you can check it. It's truth. Yeah. I didn't. I didn't make it up. It's not fiction. Um, and the twenty percent that would put anybody in jail. That's the fiction part, and that's that's basically it's up to people to decide. Okay, what's fiction here, and what's yeah, and I think yeah. that's what fascinated them, because it's almost written like a documentary, um, uh, autobiography. In fact, there's sections of it that are written in second person perspective, mm-hmm. which is never done in novels. I mean, once right. in a blue, blue, blue moon, it's just not done. But it is done in autobiographies, right? But not in fiction. So I, so I, and then the rest is third person omniscient. That's yeah. So I think that threw them, and they, they, they didn't. They just couldn't. It, it was cognitive dissonance. How can this? How right. it, What's truth here? And 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 so I I didn't have to like I say make up a whole bunch. I, I lived the life and right. and just told the story with characters that are woven in that may or may not exist. That's people's right. people right. have to decide what what was I doing on those international trips. Right. And and it's not me. It doesn't say Jim Shockey other than the, by Jim Shockey. Yeah. But the 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 protagonist is a young lady um, in her twenties. It's not you know it's not a it's not about me. It's not but, a forty-year-old man but, traveling the world with a no, with a muzzleloader. Yeah. yeah. No, no, but but the anti-hero is a, a guy that's in his sixties that that uh, has lived a life beyond the pale, and he's a hunter. The villain is a animal rightsist, uh, hor- the, the most horrible villain you can ever imagine, and and um, anti-hunter, and and so I, what I did was I not only wrote a book that's fact maybe fiction hard to tell but you can google everything that's in there and hey there's the truth it's it's there yeah. i have pictures yeah. of everything it was document heck it's been videoed so <laughs> you can google all that yeah and the um, 
but but it switches the stereotypes around, right? So so the villain isn't the Bambi killer, you know. That's the antihero, which is okay. He's tragically flawed. It makes him human. It's, right. It's the uh, or the yeah the the villain is is the animal rights which normally in in modern right. media for the last what 60 years since at our least Ruar, long, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, yeah at least that's we've been the villains we've been Absolutely. vilified and marginalized by mainstream right. media yes. suddenly that's switched and it's written well enough that it's not an obvious you know it's it's not a it's not blatant because right. it's so truthful yeah it's just the truth and 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 i think that's what what fascinates uh that mm-hmm. that crowd and and again thank you to jack carr we were talking earlier about not looking like a standard. I mean, Jack Carr is right. a he's a he's a Navy ex Navy SEAL. Yeah. I mean, the the guy he should not be able to write. You know, had what three bestsellers on the top mm-hmm. ten in the New York Times bestseller yeah, at the same really time. He's really good. Yeah, he's really good. I I've, and, and I does, really envy people. I have tried to write novels, but I haven't showed them to anyone because because I think they're bad. So you know, but but then again, as writers know, is that uh, that's good practice though. By doing that and you know you're going to learn something from that so that when you sit down to do your next one you have picked up all the things that you wish you could have done different in that one and tell this story differently you know yeah, um, yeah. i mean you, you hone your craft and your your skill right. gets better and, right yeah and again it, it just takes time you're still young you've got right. you've got lots of time ahead of you to, to sit yeah. down right i'll be 60 this year this is my 60th autumn so i got some big hunts planned for myself this year that's my 60th yeah autumn. good for you yeah thank you um, but I, I told my wife years ago that I've always felt like that my outdoor writing was God's way of helping me polish my craft for other writing that I want to do that this in my head that I want to do, because you've seen how magazines and, and outdoor world have changed drastically from the adventure stories to just very 500 word how to's, you know, and so the ability or the, the opportunity to write really good adventure is not there. Like it used to be in a, in most magazines. And that's what I put in my books are those type of stories, the things that are in my head. Yeah. And as, as I say, Jim, I write what pays me so I can afford to write what I enjoy. What you enjoy. Yeah. Yep. And, uh, and that's what, and I hope well, that people are benefited from it. I do. I do. Yeah. Well, I just, to, to add to that, to let you know, for the amount of work that I put in on this novel, it, it, even, and it's a big advance, you yeah. know, it was, I was shocked. It works out to about a dollar 50 an hour. So, so far, <laughs> you know, and, and I don't, unless it makes the New York times bestseller, like top of the list, I, I think it's probably going to end up being a dollar 25 an hour by the time it's all said and done. So, yeah. So, so it's, you know, it, you don't write to be rich, although there are people that make good money at it. I mean, Stephen right. King, I would argue and, and, uh, Rawlings, I mean, the, these people are probably have access to private jets. Yeah. But you know, the, the mere proletariat writers out here, no. you, you do it because it's, it's a passion. It's something you, it, you were destined you to, have have to, to do. do. You have to do, have as to you do. said, you, you, you have these stories in your brain that you just have to get out because there's other stories waiting to get in there. So you got to get yeah. this story out. So the other story can start to incubate and grow, you know, in your, in your head. And it's just, it's something that we are just driven to do. We just have to, yeah. it's like breathing. Yeah. Yeah, uh, it's like it, you're it's exactly the truth. You, uh, some a very wise person told me once that a, who was it? No, it wasn't. A, told me it was a an author, and they said that it may have been Samuel Clements. The the difference between a writer 
and everybody else as the writer actually sits down and writes and that's yeah what we do i mean that's what we would want who would want to sit there for eight hours looking at a screen and and no got to do that back no you know and three times it's on the screen you you've rewritten that same sentence it's yes. taken you an hour and then you go on to the next one. Who wants to, who chooses that? And it's people because you have, yeah, to. you have to, and it is work. I mean, it is mental and people don't understand. I think they just think we just sit down and we just crank it out and you can, and you, and it's not worth uh, kindling. I mean, cause it's so, it's so bad, but to write a thousand or a hundred thousand good words that fit perfect and make good stories and sentences, that is hard work. It really is. Yeah. Um, but it's, it's rewarding, not financially, but for it the is. for the soul. It is. It is. And as Stephen King, you mentioned him a couple of times on his book called Own Writing, which is his book on the craft yeah. of writing. It's the best book on that that I've ever read as far as helping writers figure out how to do it. You know, and one of his things is I write 2,000 words a day. It may take me yeah. an hour and a half. It may take me 15 hours. But I write 2,000 good words a day, seven days a week until yeah. he finishes his novel. And, and I have tried that model and I was like, well, I write 1500 word stories all the time. This can't be hard. And, well, was I wrong <laughs> to do it to yeah, that level? It, but that's, that, yeah, he wasn't the only one. Hemingway used to do the same thing. Yeah. He would write yeah. until 10, I think. And then he, or noon, and then he'd pick up his gin, yeah. but, but <laughs> you have, you have to do it. Every you day. have to do it. And that, you know, I, I have to say, I have, I should have been working on the sequel a year ago, you know, it should be long done by now, but I, I, I'm, you know, I'm the kind of person that until a project's finished, I can't really get on to the next one until it's out of my head. And, well, yep. and here it is, it's done. we've done the book tour. We've done, I've done everything I can. Now I can sit down and, and, right. and focus on the next, the next one. So well, I'm well, not I, the best example yeah. of writer either. Yeah. And, but you've had other things going on in your life too. Right. I mean, just, a, you know, just a few, yeah. you've had a lot of other things going on and you've shared some of those publicly about your wife's illness. And I want to, I want to say to you, um, is that you and Louise are, are in my prayers and I've met Louise at a trade show. And I want to say this too, I'm not blowing your horn, Jim, but, um, I was standing in line and Louise was standing there and I was, and I just started talking to her because I felt like she was being ignored because she was there to support you. What a kind lady. I mean, yeah. and I'm saying that sin- sincerely. I, I have nothing to gain by saying this, but what a genuinely kind person she is. And and uh, she was just so um, just refreshing and, and gentle and a, just a good spirit about her. And I was just I was just amazed by that. And I also want to say, which I put in my notes that, that I sent to you for people listening, is I've had the chance to meet Jim several times at trade shows. I'm sure he doesn't remember me because of the lines are so long. But one thing I want to say to you is thank you, because I know that when I finally get there and I'll just, and I'll go there just to say, thank you for what you do for our, for our sport and for our lifestyle. Is it, as I watch that every person that has been waiting in line, sometimes for an hour or more, you give them their undivided attention and you treat them like they're the only person in that arena. And you stand there and talk to them for as long as they want to talk. And that is something that is rare. And I want to thank you for that. Uh, you don't see that with a lot of people who were as well known as you are. Uh, most of them just, just go on to the next, go on to the next. But you, you have really uh, impressed me and a lot of people with the, with the integrity with which you treat every person that, that 
stands in line to take their picture with you or shake your hand. And I, and I want to thank you for that. Cause that's just being a great ambassador for, for what we do for what you and your wife and your family are going through. You know, I'm, I'm sorry for that, but is there anything that you want to add? I know our time limits up. Is there anything that you want to add for this? Uh, just, just that you were 100% correct about Louisiana. Tomorrow will actually be our 39th anniversary of our first date. Oh, how June cool! 4th. How and, cool is that? Yeah, and, and I, in that time, 39 years, I've never seen. I, there's just not a mean bone in Louisa's body. She she's the most selfless caring compassionate gentle graceful elegant person and and that's truly who she is if she walks in a room it, it, it she, there's an aura she she lights mm -hmm. up people people grab it they know that she's got no ill intent there's nothing if she if she gives she's giving without any strings and which is right. she does it every single I, i've seen her in lineups at grocery stores talking to the person helping a person she's never met before in her life yeah. with with their personal problems she she she's an angel on earth and and she has been i, I you know why every day i wake up and go why you know why me and i understand you know why you know the the creator wants her back where she belongs in heaven i mean that that's i understand that and i i've just have been blessed to to share the time these decades right. with with this amazing right. human being and well, it, and, and she's yeah. made, she's made me a better person i mean mm -hmm. to see her selflessness i mean you know and, and i you know if I, if i ever act anything differently than what what you describe me as you know please come up to me and say hey you know you're acting arrogant or you think you're special or your feet you know your feet are on the ground like everybody else's i it just can't happen i mean it won't happen with me i, I it won't it, because i know you know i'm well grounded and, and with mm -hmm. louise around you, you you cannot live any other way i mean she she by her example by well, like i say by her grace you you cannot possibly think put yourself first in front of everybody else even, right. even right now what she's going through she's still Every day is positive, and she's in pain now. You know, every day is in pain. It's it's so sad to see, but but she looks at me and says, "Look, there's children out there that are suffering right now," and and you know that's sad. Yeah, and and she'll say, you know, she's 66 years old. She's she say it's 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 a privilege to get to this age, and mm -hmm. and you know to to look at yourself and feel sorry for yourself because of what you're going through at this age and this is her talking you know there's yeah. there's other people you should be thinking of you know younger right. people that are going through this that are struggling suffering people listening right now right and and so even at at this stage and and you know i mean we were at the palliative care doctors yesterday i mean this is the stage it's at it's it's uh she's still so full of grace she she's God lives within Louise, and I, I'm not just saying that. I've seen it. I've seen it, right. and I'm unworthy. And and I'll do my best because you have to. When she touches your everybody, she's touched in her life. That's come in her sphere of influence. She's they walk away happier and and thinking just like you did. That's who yeah. she is. Feeling she better about feels, yourself having been in her presence. You know, of that's course. how I felt. Everybody. I felt better. I felt better about 
just life in general, just in the four minute conversation I had with Louise Shockey. And, uh, and that just, I mean, that was golly four or five years ago, maybe the ATA show in Louisville. Um, and it was, yeah. And so it was like, it just made such a strong impression on me of, of, of just her. And, that, and, and I've told people that many, many times I said, yeah, I've met and people. Say, Have you met Jim? Said, yeah, I've met Jim, but you ought to meet his wife. She is an amazing yeah. lady. She is an amazing lady and she is. And, and, and her legacy will live on for who knows how long. Right. Right. And, uh, you know, as somebody told me one time, most people are forgotten by the time their grandkids are adults, but some, some people live beyond that. And if I'm not known for anything else, I want my family to know that I love them. And I want my friends to know that I love them and I love them unconditionally. And that, and that I can do that because God first loved me. Right. That's what the Bible teaches. I I can love because God loves me and, and I can't do it without that. And, uh, and I'm thankful for all the people that I've met. I appreciate your time, Jim. I really do. I know it's, uh, it's, it's very valuable and, uh, you got a lot going on and, and, but I would like to pray for you and your family now, if we may, and then we can wrap up after that. Yep. Right. Holy God, thank you so much for Jim and for Louise and for Eva and Brandlin and, and their children-in-laws. We thank you for, for his whole family, for the, for the impact that he's made in our, in the activities we love so much, but also for the life in which, in which they live. We want to especially lift up Louise now, Lord, and for what she's going through, we pray that you ease her pain that you make her comfortable and that the influence that she has will continue to grow and that her grace will be felt. And Lord, we just pray that they will feel the, the immense grace and love of God, that, that your spirit will surround them and encompass them, Lord, and just let them feel your love and your, and your mighty grace that even in the, in the times we don't understand and in the, in the days that, that are ahead that we know that they will know surely that you are walking with them and carrying them. And we lift this up in the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Amen. Jim, thank you so much, buddy. I do appreciate this time. I do. Jim, thank you so much, buddy. I really do appreciate it. And you will stay in my prayers. All right. Awesome. Thank you for having me on. It was an yes, honor. Sir. Thank you.